0: Some of you probably have with you a Bible where the publisher has printed all of the spoken words of the Lord Jesus Christ in red ink, sometimes referred to as a red letter version of the Bible, not a very imaginative title but it describes it and where that's the case you'll be able to confirm that that red ink is found only in the New Testament. Well, leaving to one side the possible rights or wrongs of doing that at all, having decided to do it, strictly speaking, the publisher has it wrong in restricting that red ink to the New Testament. Because the words of Christ, the very words of Christ, are found in the Old Testament as well. You can argue, of course, very strongly That as this entire book is God's word, and as Christ is the eternal word, why then not print it all in red? (laughs) But that would rather defeat the object, I suppose. Or maybe it just strengthens the case for those who think that those red ink versions can be unhelpful in that it suggests that certain parts of the Bible are much more important than others, perhaps a discussion for another time. The point is that in the Old Testament and especially in the Psalms and often those written by David, we find things that are written that were very much the experience and testimony of the Old Testament writer which are also prophetic and revelatory. But in them we find that they reveal the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have words which in the New Testament are ascribed as being His. I mentioned last time when we looked at verses 6 and 8 that the New Testament writer to the Hebrews in chapter 10 explicitly credits these words as being the very words of Christ. There is so much more of the gospel and of Christ in the Old Testament than many Christians realise. And that's what makes the Old Testament so worthy of our time and study. What is the gospel really all about? What is it that lies at the very heart of the gospel? And the Lord Jesus Christ, what is it about him and the reason that he came into the world? Well, he came to make certain things known. Now, these things had already been made known through the Old Testament prophets as the writer to the Hebrews begins his letter. God, who at various times and in various ways Spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Now, the words of the Old Testament prophets were not always easily understood. Even today, when you read them, they're not always easily understood. But there are certain parts of it that are crystal clear. Read Isaiah 53, Psalm 51. There's not many that would say, I don't understand. Those passages which speak of Christ, well, they're made more and more clear in the Bible. And the fact that the Christ of whom they speak has come in person, well, That really leaves us without any excuse. And so the the writer to the Hebrews, whose opening words I began, he continues like this, you see, God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high God has spoken by his son but actually if you were to start reading your Bible at Genesis and work your way through you wouldn't have to wait till you get to the New Testament to read the words of Christ And here in Psalm 40, verses 9 and 10, we have the words of Christ. I have proclaimed. I have not hidden. I have declared. I have not concealed. You're left without excuse that Christ has come. and By the mouth of the apostles and through all the generations of believers since then, Christ continues to make these things known. When Christ speaks, to whom does he speak? The great congregation, it says in our text. Who are they? All who will hear. Anywhere, everywhere, anytime. And so this evening, that now includes you. You're going to hear the very words of Christ in these verses. And what is it that Jesus has said which you need to hear? Well, we're going to consider these three things. You, what you lack and what you need. God, what he is like. And God, what he provides. And you're going to discover what you lack. And what you need. And I trust, see, that they're found only in Christ. Well, let's begin with the first of those headings. What you lack and what you need. If you were to go down into the city centre on a Saturday afternoon with a questionnaire that began with this question, what do you suppose people might say? Here's the question. If you had to name one thing in your life which you lack, what would it be? If you had to name one thing in your life which you lack, what would it be? How would an unbeliever answer that question? More money, more influence, More hope for the future. Employment. Love. A partner. A child. If I asked you as a Christian to name one thing which you think is at the top of the list in terms of what unbelievers lack, what would you say? What do you think it is that unbelievers lack that they most need? How would you answer that question? Hope? Well, that's true. Peace? Purpose and meaning? Well, there's a degree to which they would lack all of those things, that's for sure. What answer might Jesus give? Verse 9. Righteousness. Righteousness. Were you expecting that? Righteousness. What you most lack and what you most need before a pure and a holy God righteousness to be without sin to be spiritually clean before him because that is not what you are that is not how you are and that lies at the very centre of all your other problems and all your other needs. Deal with this one. All the others, well, they'll they'll be dealt with. Because deal with this one problem and your fellowship with God may be renewed and restored. And that will change everything. And this one problem, un- Righteousness is what keeps you separated from God. Righteousness and unrighteousness lie at the heart of the gospel. Well, when we use the word righteousness, what do we mean? What is it? Well, Psalm 45 and verse 7 says this, speaking of God, you love Righteousness and hate wickedness. Well, that gives us a very helpful starting point. There are two clear and opposite positions. There is righteousness and there is wickedness. Righteousness is everything that is not wicked in God's eyes. In Proverbs, we read these words. So you may walk in the way of goodness and keep to the paths of righteousness. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness, nothing crooked or perverse in them. So righteousness has to do with goodness. As God considers things to be good, righteousness has to do with nothing being crooked or perverse, nothing deceitful, nothing untruthful, nothing that will mislead or misguide righteousness. And then, if you really want to get down to the practice, practicalities of it well you look no further than 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and you start reading at verse 9 where the Apostle Paul is speaking. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They can't can they? Do not be deceived. Well what is unrighteousness then Paul? Well Paul wants to make sure that none of us are under any Apprehensions as to what unrighteousness is. So he names it for what it is. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. That which is wicked, that which is crooked, that which is perverse, that which in God's eyes is not good. Righteousness. Question. How many of us lack it? How many of us do not have the righteousness that is necessary that we might live in fellowship with God? Romans 3. It is written, there is none righteous. You know the verse. No, not one. There's none who understands. None who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. Try telling the world that. There is none who does good as God defines good. No, not one. Why is this an issue? Why should it concern us? Romans 1.18 The wrath of God, the righteous anger of God His displeasure against sin, his perfect judgment against sin, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Do you not know that the unrighteous? will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's why it's an issue. And the the fact is, what the writer to the Hebrews in the opening chapter says is true of every single man and woman and boy and girl. Of God. Sorry, what he says is true of God. That God has loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. He He loves righteousness, he hates lawlessness and all of us find ourselves in our sinful condition in which we are born on the side of lawlessness. So the opposite of righteousness is lawlessness. Rebellion against God, rejection of him, transgression of his laws. Now there are hundreds of references to righteousness in the Bible and for the most part righteousness is used to describe and speak of God's character. That righteousness is what he is. Righteousness is who he is. Righteousness is what God is like. Righteousness refers to everything that is good and pure and true and just. As you find those things in God, righteousness is this all-embracing word which speaks of everything that is right and good and holy about God. And the the point is, He is the standard for those things. He sets the bar for them. We would love it that we can be the standard and that we can set our own bar for these things. But God has set the standard and He is the standard. You and I are not... And it's our unrighteousness that's brought about our separation from God. It's our unrighteousness that brings God's anger and judgment and condemnation upon us. That's the key message that the Bible reveals about you. That you're born and you live in unrighteousness. It's what you most need. And it's the thing you most lack. But don't despair. Why? Because Jesus, and these are his words, verse nine, has come to proclaim good news. Jesus has come to proclaim good news. These verses reveal to us what God is like. We've already seen that he's righteous, that he must act against unrighteousness, But Jesus was sent into the world by God the Father with a message of good news which shows that God is faithful, kind and true. So here's the second part of the message. God, what he is like and he's faithful and kind and true. So you'll see in verses 9 and 10, Jesus there is through the the mouth of his servant David, he declares God's faithfulness. God is faithful, verse 10, halfway through the verse. And Jesus, of course, declares the faithfulness of God in two main ways. First of all, he speaks of it. And secondly, He himself came into the world to be the living proof of it, that God is faithful. Not only actually will Jesus be the living proof of it, Jesus will be the living and dying proof of God's faithfulness. And he'll also be the resurrected proof of God's faithfulness too. God is a God of covenant, a God of promise what god says god will do because god also is truth in verse 10 god is truth he isn't just true he is truth sometimes christians are described as being too dogmatic uh, too feeling too right in their beliefs too narrow-minded maybe, too inflexible in their views, too much fixed in their position and what they believe and trust in. But when people make those kinds of accusations against Christian people, what they fail to understand is that we are not propagating our thoughts and opinions and beliefs. We're putting forward beliefs which are not our own. They're not our opinions. They're not our judgments. It's not how we see things to be. We have come to see that there is an authority which lies outside of ourselves. There is an authority which is above us. There's an authority which is greater than us. There is a wisdom and a power which is the person of God. And he has established and he is that which is truth. Truth is not something that we get to decide or establish for ourselves. Much as the world would have you think. Truth is God. God is truth. And so in God we see the one who himself is the standard for truth and God has declared his truth. Our task is to repeat it and to pass it on and declare it and make it known. This is the God to whom you must one day give an account. This is the God before whom you will one day stand. These aren't my thoughts or ideas. This is him in his truth declaring these things to you. And that is our job as his mouthpieces in this world, his ambassadors in this world, his heralds in this world to make him known. If you would know the truth, you must come to the one who himself is the truth. Now, the godless world in which we live has decided that truth is something that it can define and decide for itself. And the Apostle Paul talks about that. He says they've exchanged the truth of God for the lie and that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The Bible, you see, says that truth is already defined and decided The world's full of lies and deceit. God is truth. And in him alone truth is found. And that which is declared by Christ is truth. You will either take it or leave it. You will either believe it or reject it. And that decision will decide where you spend eternity. The faithfulness and the truth of God are found and seen in Jesus Christ. All of God's promises are fulfilled in him. All of God's truth is displayed by him. Is there such a thing as sin which is in need of forgiveness? And is there one who has the power and authority to forgive sin? Jesus looked at a paralysed man lying on his bed on the floor. All around him, thoroughly perplexed and confused that this man, Jesus, would dare to say two things. Number one, even though paralysed, this man's greatest need and problem is his sin. Number two, I have the authority to forgive it. And people really weren't sure what to think. Some were adamant he must be wrong. Some probably thought he was a fool. Man. Get up. Pick up your bed. Walk. And he did. Because Jesus is truth. Everyone watched amazed as the paralyzed man rose to his feet and left rejoicing. Because you see, God is faithful and God is truth and God is kind. God is kind. I have not concealed your loving kindness, Jesus says through the mouth of David. What kindness! you discover in the Lord Jesus Christ what compassion he has upon people. God is many other things, but grasp hold of these three this evening, if nothing else. God is faithful. God is truth. And God is kind. The loving kindness of God He sent his own son to suffer and to die in this world so that the thing you need most and the thing you most lack might all be restored and sorted out. And he did so out of his sheer loving kindness, all of his grace given as a gift. Salvation. Salvation. God. God. What he is like, what he provides, salvation. I've declared your faithfulness and your salvation. God is a saving God. Now, do you remember what we read earlier about your state before God in your unrighteousness? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The unrighteous will not, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now that is what the gospel is all about. That is what salvation is all about. God has come in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to deal with the issue and problem of your unrighteousness which brings you under the wrath of God. And it's because of the salvation that he's secured through Christ that he's able to speak of the good news of righteousness. There is one who's come into this world And who's lived a sinless life in righteousness. And it is the perfect righteousness of Christ that is the good news for you. Why? Why is the righteousness of Christ good news for you? Romans 5.19 As by one man's disobedience... Many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. He made him who knew no sin, righteousness, to be sin for us, to take upon himself our unrighteousness. Why? That we, you, might become, what? The righteousness of God in him. He's come to deal with the problem of your unrighteousness so that before your heavenly Father, this evening, before you leave this room, you may stand before God and him view you as righteous in His sight because of Christ, what Christ has done in your place and because of the righteousness of Christ which is brought to you. You see, it's a hugely significant thing in the Old Testament. In the sacrificial system, the animals chosen for sacrifice were to be the best of the flock and herd without any defect And that requirement points forward to the one whom God has appointed to be his acceptable substitute to die in the place of sinners on their behalf. In Jesus Christ is the one man who ever walked this earth without sin. Never once was he lawless. In Christ there is perfect righteousness. There is good news of righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Having no sin of his own meant that he had no debt to pay. And so he's qualified to stand in your place and pay your debt. Not only did he take your sins and your unrighteousness upon himself as if they were his. His righteousness now is accounted yours. As if it is yours before God the Father. What grace is this? that you may stand before God accepted in Christ because God may look upon you and all he sees is the righteousness of his own son. No wonder it's good news of righteousness. There's a righteousness that's required of you. If you would be in right standing before God, You don't have it any more than I do. But in Christ, it's yours. He's come to deal with the guilt of your unrighteousness and to give you the righteousness you do need. And it's his very own. I've quoted from 1 Corinthians 6, but I haven't continued in the quotation. Let me carry on. Do you not know that unrighteousness, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were made right in God's eyes. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And it's like a legal declaration that God has placed over you that you're accepted now in Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to sinners as Jesus said he would and he convicts them of sin and of righteousness. Has he done that in you? Has he convicted you of your sin? Has he convinced you of your own unrighteousness? And has he convicted and convinced you of that righteousness which is found in Christ that you so need? And has he convinced you that at Calvary this glorious exchange has taken place? Just as we've read. You know that in your sinful state you're facing eternal ruin. But you see and find in Christ righteousness and eternal hope. And in that new life which Christ brings, everything is completely turned around. And so Paul can say, having been set free from sin because sin enslaves you, instead now you've become slaves of righteousness. See the complete turnaround? Let me quote a famous verse. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. You know that verse? What words have I just left out? Ah. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the verse says. And all these things shall be added to you. Isn't that interesting? How often I've had that, heard that verse quoted and the, and his righteousness gets left out. His righteousness is what's required. There's only one place where it's found. And that's at the cross of Christ. A whole new life and experience A new heart and mind and nature. That which separates you from God done away with. That which permits you to draw near to God. Given as his gift of grace. Righteousness. The thing you most lack. Righteousness. The thing you most need. Righteousness found only in the Lord Jesus Christ.